Hey friend, Kat Harris here. I wanted to let you know I just wrote a book called Sexless in the City, a sometimes sassy, sometimes painful, always honest look at dating, desire, and sex. It's about my journey of growing up in Southern evangelical Christian culture in the height of what's known as purity culture, where I, along with millions of other angsty teens, learned a set of rules and do's and don'ts when it comes to sex, dating, intimacy, gender roles, and a lot of other things too. Only after I moved to New York City in my 20s and dated more in one year than I had dated in an entire decade did I learn something crucial. It's a lot harder to not have sex when you're actually dating. This book is my process of deconstructing the shaming sexual narratives I was given by both the church and culture, and for the first time in my life, asking Jesus, is there another way? Whether you're single, married, engaged, dating, Christian or not a Christian or somewhere in between, I believe this book will encourage you and equip you to navigate and process these layered topics with practical tools, nuance, and freedom. You can grab Sexless in the City wherever books are sold or go to sexlessinthecitybook.com to find out more. Thank you so much for being on this journey with me. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and I'm just so glad you're here. This podcast is designed to dig below the surface. We're going to talk about everything from life to love and pretty much everything in between. So go ahead and leave that Superman cape of having it all together at the door because life is freaking messy. Don't I know it. Now, not only are we going to be real, we're going to have some fun too, because Lord knows I will find any excuse to bring up Beyonce or the latest episode of The Bachelorette. So if you're a new friend, welcome. Make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective podcast on iTunes. And if you're an old friend, welcome back. And would you do me a quick favor? Hop on over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and written review. I would be so grateful. Finally, if something stands out to you in this episode, go on and slide into my DMs on Instagram. I love hearing from you. It's at The Refined Woman. Now let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to The Refined Collective Podcast. I am your host, Kat Harris. And first up, thank you, Newsstand Studio here at Rock Center in New York City for hosting me today to record my podcast I am forever grateful to y'all. So, so very grateful. And thank you so much to my Patreon community for your continual support of the Refined Collective. You can learn more about how to join Patreon or join for just as little as $5 a month at patreon.com slash the Refined Collective. And when you join, you get access to weekly VIP videos that I drop. So Would love to have you in the community. Now, like I mentioned last week, we are in the middle of a mini-series. And I don't do mini-series a lot, but mental health means so much to me because I've struggled deeply with mental health. And May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And so I just wanted to pause all of the other content and dedicate four weeks to talking about mental health. So if you missed last week's episode, I talk with a trauma therapist, Kobe, and she answers a ton of questions for us, one of the main ones being, how do I know when I need professional help? 
It was an incredible conversation. So be sure and check that out. Now, today, what we are talking about is how to identify stress and anxiety triggers, even depression triggers. How can we change our relationship with anxiety? And also, I'm going to share with you how quitting caffeine literally changed my life. Let's get to it. First question, what triggers anxiety? For me, for years, in the beginning of my career, I felt like I was on fire. I was willing to do anything and everything for the job. When I was new in my photography career, I was working 16 hours a day, priding myself on that. I was then going out, hanging out with friends, going to parties, going to cocktails, skipping meals because I was too busy. And then I was getting up before others to get ahead. I was like, the early bird gets the worm. And I remember being at New York Fashion Week. Oh my gosh, it must be 10 plus years ago, maybe 12 years ago. And I kept waking up in the middle of the night, gasping for air. I was having these heart palpitations and it was really scary. I thought, oh my gosh, am I dying? Am I having a heart attack? And then I would just roll over (laughs) because I was like, I got to go to sleep because I have another fashion show in two hours. And I sort of just started living that way, embracing the sort of life in the fast lane lifestyle. If you ain't working, you ain't working. And I would wake up constantly in the middle of the night with these heart palpitations and just think, ah, I just must be sleeping on the wrong side. I was living a life on jet fuel and I loved it. It was intoxicating. And I also was doing life with a lot of people who also lived this way and encouraged this lifestyle. In fact, one of my exes used to say all the time, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And I was like, yeah, we're young. We'll sleep when we die. And to be frank, I was being rewarded for my behavior. My business was growing. I was this jet setter flying from New York to LA and all over the Caribbean for different clients. And I thought, you know what? This is working for me. And also as a business owner, I didn't get paid time off. So I thought if I wasn't working, how am I going to pay my bills? I also got a lot of opportunities in my career because I was a yes person. I honestly said yes, no matter what, even if that meant I couldn't eat a meal, I couldn't go on a vacation I planned, or if it meant me not sleeping the night before, I was a yes person. And part of that got me to where I am today. And in that, I also paid a really, really high cost for those decisions. And then like an alcoholic moving to a bar, I moved to New York City about seven years ago. And for a long time, I've said New York City is like being in the right place at the right time all the time if you're open to it. So not only did I already have this lifestyle when I was starting my business of these crazy work days and crazy social life as well, then I moved to the center of all of it, which worked until it didn't work. In the show notes of this podcast, or if you go to therefinedwoman.com, I am going to show you a picture of me during that season. (laughs) I thought everything was great. And then I look back on pictures of myself and I look exhausted. 
I have these crazy circles under my eyes. I was puffy all the time. I had this mystery rash all over my body. And I always joked. It became a joke with my friends. My mental health and my physical health was a joke because whenever I left New York City, the rash left. So we just referred to it as my New York City rash. And then after years of sort of living this way, one day I was shooting a wedding and almost fainted during family portraits. And I kind of, you know, stumbled and laughed it off, but it was really scary. I was embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. And I sort of, you know, brushed it off. But then a little while later at the reception, it happened again. And in the middle of photographing the first dance, I fled to the bathroom and I spent the next five hours of a wedding reception that I was getting paid a lot of money to shoot, locked in a bathroom stall on the floor with my cheek on the cold tiles to calm me down. I am so very grateful that I had a second shooter at that wedding because she took over and made excuses like, oh, I think she has food poisoning or something. I honestly did not know what was happening to my body. I thought I was dying. But then as soon as the wedding ended and we got in the car, whatever was happening left. And so I went home that night, kind of chalked it up to dehydration. Well, that was a weird fluke and thought, okay, well, better luck next time. The next weekend, I was shooting another wedding in the Hamptons. Same thing happens. We get to the family portraits, and I start seeing spots, and I stumble, fall over a chair, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to pass out. So I run to the bathroom. And again, for another five, six hours of a wedding reception that I was getting paid thousands and thousands of dollars for, I was out for the count. And this time on my way home from the wedding, I was in the back seat. The other shooter was driving and I was just curled up in a ball, crying, embarrassed. I thought, does he need to take me to the ER? Am I dying? Did I just have a heart attack? I don't know what's happening. This happened last week. Is this my new normal? Is this what it feels like to go crazy? And then the next week, I went to church. And church was and has been for a long time a very safe place for me. I'm standing there in the middle of worship, and it happens again. I can't see. I can't breathe. I feel this wave of dizziness come over me, and I stumble out of the auditorium. And I thought, this is it. This is really it. That I'm really, really, really losing it. And I just sat in the corner of this auditorium to compose myself before I tried to then make the 45-minute trek on the subway back home. And I was terrified. And then within a month of that, I was a complete wreck. I became terrified of leaving my house. Going to church felt anxiety-inducing. Shooting weddings felt like a life-or-death situation. Being on the subway felt like, oh my gosh, I am just going to freak the F out if I am on here. Was this my new normal? What was happening? Like, I just knew that I could not live this way. And so I finally 
started realizing, I'm having panic attacks. This is what panic and anxiety attacks are. And I I have heard, I had heard about anxiety attacks before then. I had heard about panic. And honestly, when people would tell me they were struggling with anxiety or mental health, I would, maybe I would be nicer with my words, but in my head, I was like, chill the F out. Like, go take a nap or go take a breather. What's wrong with you? I really did not have much empathy for it until I found myself neck deep in a battle, a all-out war on my mental health and my body because of anxiety. So in that, I asked myself, because my life came to a complete stop, I, I couldn't live like this. I couldn't work. I couldn't go to church. I couldn't do any of the normal things that brought me joy or connection. So I asked, why? Why am I being triggered? Why am I experiencing this? And really a principle here that I want to share with you that really empowered me is before we can move forward, we have to look backwards. Now, I say this a lot. I talk about it in my book. If you've attended any of my monthly online workshops, the whole framework of every single workshop is deconstruct, rebuild, and equip. So before I move forward, we have to say, how did I get here and why? That's the deconstruction. From there, we can rebuild on a firm foundation and then finally be equipped to walk through life. So how did I get there? Well, if I'm being honest, it felt like these anxiety attacks and this mental health attack came out of nowhere. It, it felt like I had woken up in the middle of the night with my house engulfed in flames. But when I paused long enough to zoom out and look back before I moved forward, I did start to notice patterns and saw, actually, my house had been smoking for a while, for years even. I'd even had the fire alarm go off, but I didn't know what to look for. And I actually can still do this today with my actual fire alarm in my condo. When the alarm goes off, you just kind of chalk it off to, oh, this is a faulty fire alarm. Nothing to see here, folks. It was really only 2020 hindsight that showed me I had been on a runway towards inevitable anxiety attacks for several years. Now, here are the patterns I noticed. And before I share the patterns, I want to share that when I was neck deep in anxiety and mental health issues, even the idea of dissecting the triggering and traumatic experience felt triggering in itself. It was a terrible cycle to feel as though for a long time it felt I couldn't even dissect the situation because I felt like if I look at this situation, if I looked at the attack, if I looked on the assault of my body and brain, then that would give me another attack. So in that if that is the place you're at, I just really encourage you to be gentle with yourself and be gracious with yourself. Like this isn't a linear journey or an overnight journey. And I can't give you like three hacks to never struggle with your mental health again. But I can be a person on the journey with you, perhaps maybe a step or two ahead that can share with you what I have learned. So when I did have the courage to finally look at every single time I had experienced a panic attack, I noticed that every single time, the few days leading up to it, I had not 
slept well or had been running on five hours or less of sleep. Now, I already mentioned that I lived in New York City, the city that never sleeps, and I was willing at that point and had been for many years leading up to that point to do anything and everything for my career. And in that, I realized I was really fueled by fear. I thought, if I'm not working, I'm not getting paid. And if I don't get paid, I can't pay rent, can't buy food, I can't take care of myself. And one of the most anxiety-inducing scenarios is when our core needs are threatened and not being met. Now, this is called the Maslow Hierarchy of Needs. You can Google it. It's really incredible. It's a five-tiered model pyramid that approaches human needs. And it goes from bottom to top. So the idea is you can't go to the next level of needs without the previous level being supported. So the base of the pyramid are our basic needs, like food, water, shelter, rest. The next level is safety and security. Do I feel safe in this situation? Do I feel secure? And then above that is belonging and love. So the right to have relationships, to feel accepted, to be seen and to see and to know and to know and to love and to be loved. And then the fourth layer on top of that is esteem and accomplishment. So I have the right to create things in the world. I have the right to take up space in the world. And finally, the top tier of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is self-actualization. So that's where we start talking about emotional intelligence and spirituality, things like that. But none of that other stuff can be taken into account if our basic needs aren't being met. And so really, I was living in the city that never sleeped, really passionate about my career, but the driving force under my career was I was terrified of not being able to take care of myself. So fire alarms for the bottom two tiers of my Maslow hierarchy of needs, basic needs. I don't know if I'm going to have my food met. I don't know if I'm going to have water. I don't know if I'm going to have shelter. I don't know if I'm going to have rest. And then I go to weddings, subway, wherever, church, and don't feel safe or secure because that's where I was having panic attacks. So first and foremost, if you're experiencing anxiety, stress, fear, pause, what are the fears underneath the fears? What is the driving force underneath the driving force? Perhaps some of your basic needs and security feel threatened. Now, Lack of sleep, definitely threatening those basic needs. I also realized whenever I had a panic attack, I had had a lack of food and water. So I'm talking big stretches, skipping meals on a consistent basis. So it would have, most of my panic attacks looked like this. I didn't sleep well the night before, probably went out, had a long day of work the next day. I didn't drink a lot of water the day before. Maybe I skipped breakfast on my way to church because I thought I was too busy and didn't have enough time. Boom, perfect storm, anxiety attack happens. I also discovered that all of my panic attacks happened on the heels of having had alcohol. Not necessarily being like, oh my gosh, I got so wasted last night and now I'm hungover and having a panic attack. That definitely did happen before and gave me a panic attack, 
But if I already had a lack of sleep, lack of food, lack of water, and a drink or two the day before, again, it became the perfect storm for me. And then finally, all of my panic attacks happened when I felt really hot or overheated. So both of those weddings that I was at, it was over 100 degrees. The panic attack that happened at the church, it was dead summer in New York City. And it's like you haven't felt heat until you are trapped (laughs) in Manhattan on a hot day by all the heat in between all the buildings. So I realized, oh, wow, like heat also was a common pattern for me in these anxiety attacks. So it really was happening with all of those things at play is that it was kind of like my gas tank was on E. And it was like I had been driving on E for about 50 miles at 100 miles an hour and then hit a pothole and my engine exploded. So let's say I was in an actual stressful situation, say public speaking or shooting a wedding or a crowded subway because these sort of basic needs of mine were lacking. I was at a resting state of probably a level eight or level nine anxiety and just didn't know it. And then the tiniest thing was then setting me up. The question is then, how can I, how can we set ourselves up for success outside of the stressful or triggering situation so that we can be maybe more so at a resting rate of like one to three, maybe even a four. Anything's really better than a level eight, level nine. I think the most important thing that we can do as after we identify those triggers is go back to the basics back to the basics, go back to that bottom line of those Maslow hierarchy of needs before anything else happens, before life, romance, work, relationship, emotional intelligence workshops, whatever it is, you have to make sure those basic needs are being met. So for me, I call it going back to the basics. I'm making sure before anything else, I'm getting at least seven hours of sleep. Dream world, I'm like a toddler and would love like 10 or 12 hours a night of sleep. And to be honest, what scares me more about having a child than actually having a child come through my vagina, like that is terrifying, like a bowling ball coming through a toothpaste dispenser. What scares me more is how parents don't sleep for like the rest of their lives. Like I, yeah, that really scares me. So anyways, You might be a parent listening to this and you're like, eight hours of sleep. Are you freaking kidding? Like, I'm lucky if I get four. And that just might be the season of life you're in. But studies and research say that when we are consistently getting six hours or less of sleep, our entire life and well-being and mental health can be dramatically affected. So if you want to learn more about that, Ariana Huffington has an incredible book called The Sleep Revolution and also quite a few TED Talks about the power of sleep. So first and foremost, before anything else, I'm getting at least seven, eight hours of sleep. Next for me, back to the basics, is making sure that I set myself up for success to eat three times a day. Now, why is this important? Because our bodies want to be at homeostasis or peace. And when we go a long time without eating, whether you struggle with low blood sugar or diabetes, or maybe you're just a human and humans, we need food to propel us throughout our day. When we don't eat for prolonged periods of times, and this is actually why I do not support things like intermittent fasting, because I think it's really unsustainable and definitely 
not helpful for, for my body. But you want to keep your body from crashing or peaking. So you're wanting to keep it at like an even pace throughout the day. So setting yourself up for three meals a day. This meant for me taking time to meal prep. So before I would be getting ready for a day in the city and be like, oh, I'll just figure it out. And then 10 hours would go by, I wouldn't have eaten. And then I would get to a point where I was overly hungry, where I was definitely hangry, having some sort of crash. And I would just hop into a bodega or a grocery store and get, let's be honest, a snack that probably wasn't the most healthy for me. And that then perpetuated that my body being out of homeostasis. So now bottom line is I eat three meals a day and I joke that I carry around an adult diaper bag. <laughs> like literally my adult diaper bag is sitting right next to me right now. It's my North Face backpack. And I always have some sort of snack with me, whether it's nuts or an RX bar, something in case I get in a pinch and I'm feeling like, oh, I'm feeling like maybe I'm feeling a little bit of a crash. Make sure that you set yourself up for success so that your body can function. You are a human, not a robot. We need food. And then another back to the basics for me is making sure that at least five days a week, I'll be, you know, I could say I do this seven days a week, but I don't. But Monday through Friday, my days begin before anything else with meditation and prayer. Like this morning was kind of a busy morning for me. And so what I did was I just put on a couple calming songs. I put on a worship song and then a calming song and sat in my bed and just breathed. At other times, it's getting into God's word. At other times, it's reading a meditation or devotion. It doesn't have to be this hour-long experience, even five minutes of meditation or prayer or listening or being still before opening the phone, before going to email, before getting into the crazy of your day. That's the bottom line for me. Like Life doesn't get to start before I do those things. And then after that, I make sure that working out is a regular rhythm in my life. Because if you are a person that struggles with depression, anxiety, which depression and anxiety we know go hand in hand, then we know that when we're in those places, kind of the last thing we want to do is move our bodies. Like, oh, I'm so, had such a long day. I'm so tired or I'm feeling stressed or I'm feeling anxious. I have so much to do. I don't have time to work out or move my body. But actually, that's the thing that your body really, really is craving. Because when we move our bodies, first of all, we get out of the chaos of our head and into our body. And then also we get those amazing endorphins and neurotransmitters released and working out like endorphins, dopamine, oxytocin, which really support our overall mental health. So what can we do outside of a triggering situation? Or if you know, I'm in a season of depression and struggling with anxiety. Hello, global pandemic, being in a global pandemic for over a year. Then let's pause and make sure you're going back to the basics. Are you getting enough sleep? Are you eating at least three meals a day? Are you meditating? Are you pausing throughout your day? Are you moving your body? Those things will transform your life. Now, I did take it a step further, and you totally don't have to do this, but I wouldn't be 
fully honest with you, if I also didn't share this part of the healing journey for me. So when I was neck deep in anxiety, I was also going to a holistic nutritionist and she said, you might want to consider cutting out alcohol and caffeine from your life. Because just how our bodies want to be at homeostasis, which is why it's important to be eating every few hours, alcohol and caffeine can really disrupt that because alcohol acts as a depressant. So that's why, you know, we say, oh, it takes the edge off, you know, it feels good. It's that social lubricant. So it acts as this depressant and can remove the anxiety initially. But then once that alcohol hits our liver, what happens? It turns to sugar, which then spikes our system. And we just went from a a valley to a really big peak. And then we wake up, right? We wake up in the middle of the night. You don't sleep as well when you have alcohol, even if you're just having one to two glasses of wine or whatever it is, it's disruptive to your sleep. So then you're like, oh, I didn't sleep well. I'm tired in the morning. So then what do we do? We grab a cup of coffee because we need that jolt to get our day started. And so then we're feeling really tired once we wake up from our disrupted sleep from the alcohol. So the coffee puts us back at another peak. And then two or three hours later, we crash. We have that caffeine crash. And so we have another valley. So then what do we do midday? Typically, we have another cup of coffee or then we we feel like, oh, I want something sugary. That's your body that is in a valley begging to be back up at a peak again. So all day long, you're high, low, high, low, high, low. And then what happens again? It's around dinner time. I could really use a glass of wine to take that edge off. And it's a vicious cycle. All that to be said, my nutritionist suggested that I get off alcohol and caffeine. And I was like, listen, lady, I'm willing to pretty much do anything else. And I had completely uprooted so much of my life, but I wasn't really willing to give up those two things. And then a few months later, I was at a conference called She is Free in New York, led by Andy Andrew here. And my friend Bianca Oltoff was speaking. And she said, I feel like I have a word for someone here in this audience. And she said, I don't know who this word is for, but someone here needs to give up alcohol for a season. And it's not because you have a drinking problem. It's because it's for your body. And I was like, mother effer. (laughs) I think that word is for me. So I ended up giving up alcohol for six months. And it really transformed my life. Now today, I am back drinking alcohol Since then, I've taken six months off of alcohol two times in the last two years. And it's really been a really positive experience. And in fact, when I gave up alcohol for those six months, three-fourths of the way through that is when my dad relapsed and went back into drug abuse. And that in itself was, talk about a triggering, traumatizing experience. That season was one of the most traumatizing, grief-inducing experiences of my life ripe for any sort of panic attack you could ever imagine. And yet I didn't have one panic attack the entire time. I really think that God knew beforehand and wanted to help set my body up for success. And I truly believe that reducing and cutting out alcohol really, really supported me in that season. And then finally, now this is going to be a big one. I cut out caffeine. Cutting out caffeine has radically changed my life. 
So even though I saw the results of cutting out alcohol for a season, I was still like, do not take coffee from me. I don't care what you tea drinkers say. Green tea is not as good as coffee. I don't care. So I ended up doing a slow process of weaning myself off caffeine because I was like, let's not get crazy here. And the reason why is because after I went back to the basics and really got to a more whole holistic place and experienced a lot of healing, I went through a year or two where I didn't have any panic attacks. And then it kind of came rearing up again last year, right around COVID time. And so I was like, man, I've literally tried everything besides getting off caffeine. And I didn't even drink a lot of coffee. I would just have one like pretty big cup in the morning and that was it. So here's what I did. I'm going to try it. My doctor says that it works. We'll see what happens. Week one, I did no caffeine past noon. So I let myself have a cup of caffeine coffee in the morning, but nothing past noon. And then week two, I went from one cup of coffee to a half a cup of coffee and still nothing past noon. And then week three, I started incorporating decaf coffee every other day. And then week four, I went all decaf. And I've been all decaf for about a year now, I think. And it's interesting because sometimes I'll still have caffeine. Like I was recording a podcast last month and I was like, oh, I'm I'm like in New York. I'm going to have a cup of coffee. It's going to be my little treat. I was recording a podcast and felt really lightheaded and started getting like hypervigilant. And I was like, am I having a panic attack? No, I had caffeine pulsing through my veins. <laughs> And now that I've removed it, I can tell how much it impacts me. Like caffeine is a very anxiety-inducing substance. So back to the basics. What I really want you to hear here is that tiny micro steps in our lives can make big changes when we're committed to them. Besides back to the basics, are there any other tools that we can do to support ourselves before or outside of a triggering experience. Yes, this one is called Taking My Thoughts Captive. There is a French philosopher, Montaigne, and he says, there were many terrible things in my life and most of them never happened. (laughs) So what I realized with myself when I was feeling triggered is what happened is I had this runaway train of thoughts that would just leave the station. So as soon as I was feeling a little bit triggered, it was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm going to die. I would just instantly start thinking and obsessing over the potential worst case scenarios. And it was taking over my life. Then I can laugh now at that French philosophers quote that there were many terrible things in my life and most of them never happened because I think what happens with fear and anxiety is fear is the projection of what has not happened. And then we get sucked into the future of worst case scenarios on that runaway train and it steals from us being present to what's actually happening in the moment. So when I was experiencing anxiety, like for instance, when I was public speaking once, I froze on stage and it got really scary. And so from that point moving forward, I had this trauma experience of public speaking. And every time I would go up on stage, I would feel like I was going to throw up or faint or 
have a seizure on stage, which I've never had a seizure before. And it was all I could think about. Underneath all of the fear, I just could not function anymore. So pause that. How do we interrupt the runaway train of our thoughts? I think this is where a really cool scripture passage comes to mind that now that I have struggled with mental health, it hits me in a completely different way. So this is actually an excerpt from my book, Sexless in the City. Paul, one of the great teachers of the New Testament, charged the church of Corinth to be ever so aware of their thought life. Paul doesn't say they should take their thoughts captive. He says they are a people who take their thoughts captive. The assumption is that they already are a people who understand the power of their thoughts and regularly examine the source and root of them. He encourages them to keep that up. In Romans, Paul says to allow ourselves to be transformed with renewed minds. Later to the church in Philippi, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, Paul knew something powerful. Our mindsets determine our reality. We become what we think about. What are you spending your time thinking about? I don't think we all wake up in the morning as masochists. These limiting beliefs feel true because we've often had real experiences that act as proof. Our circumstances are real. It's not like they don't happen. Our past impacts our present and can prevent us from our future if we let it. That's why the invitation of faith is so profound. Faith invites us to have the courage to walk into a reality outside the here and now of our emotions and circumstances. It's a more ultimate reality. Faith beckons us to lean into the possibility of the unseen and whispers, like my friend Ruthie Lindsay says, just because you know a story by heart doesn't mean it's true. Narratives are always on the hunt for new evidence. So if we're going to look for it anyway, we might as well look for evidence of God's goodness and what's possible. To do that, we first have to identify the limiting beliefs we're holding on to, release them, flip the script, and start looking for new evidence. Here's the truth. What we repeat, we strengthen. So thank you for shameless plug for my book, but it felt appropriate for this conversation. So before I feel activated, triggered, panic, fear rising, whatever it is, let's do some work. Now, like I said, you can't really do this in the moment, but this is before. So first, get curious. What am I really afraid of happening? What's the fear underneath the fear? Even if the fear happens, will I be okay? So let's take, for instance, public speaking and I freeze. I feel panic in that moment. What was I really afraid of happening there? I was afraid of being humiliated. I was afraid of falling. I was afraid of not being safe. And then the fear underneath the fear was I didn't know who could help me. If I was on stage, I was there to support other people who could support me. So I was living in a space at the very core that I don't know who's safe. And so if I don't know who's safe and I'm in a situation that my body's telling me feels very threatening, then what has then happened? My hierarchy of needs are now threatened. I go into fight or flight. I'm freaking out. And so, of course, that's going to feel fear-inducing, right? 
This is why the next question is important. Even if the fear happens, will I be okay? So let's say I experience humiliation from a stage. Will I be okay? Yes. Because here's the truth. Even when I'm speaking on stage, like people don't go to see people speak on stage to see them fail. Like people who are in an audience want to see you win. And let's say I do faint or I do have to run off stage. Am I going to be okay? Yes, I'm going to be okay. Even if the worst case scenario happens, it may be uncomfortable, but I will be okay. Ultimately, I am safe. So after getting curious and really digging about what it is that you're really afraid of, let's then replace it with truth. What do you need to hear right now? For me, I needed to hear things like, I am safe. I have everything I need. Even if the worst case scenario happens, I am safe. I can reach out and ask for support. I am not alone. I am accepted. I am loved. So what are the truths you need to hear? What are the truths that combat the fear that is being ignited in that moment of anxiety or depression? How can outside of that situation, you have the tools to know what you need to hear? This is why I constantly talk about having truth, truth bombs. I have post-it notes everywhere, all over my house, on my phone, in my text messages. I am safe. I am seen. I am loved. I am accepted. Because the idea here is that renewing our minds is an actual thing, like what Paul says in the New Testament, to have a renewed mind. Now, this is in alignment with what we learn about our minds from science. Our brains are pattern makers. We have to interrupt the pattern and look for evidence of a new way to make new neuropathways. Now, knowing what triggers fear, anxiety, depression, etc. outside of the situation will help give you tools to move through the moment. Because ultimately, as we wrap up, here's what's true. Life isn't about living fear-free. It's about changing our relationship to fear. Fear ignites because our minds and bodies think our lives are in danger. Isn't that incredible? Like God designed our bodies to keep us alive. So acknowledge the fear. Thank you, fear, for coming for a visit. And now, fear, you don't get to be in the driver's seat today. So as we reflect on this episode, I know I have thrown a lot at you, a lot of practical, personal story. My hope is that you can maybe implement maybe a couple micro steps into your life that would support you. And in that, here's a few reflection questions. Number one, what triggers your anxiety, stress, depression? Number two, what things in your life calm, bring peace, and stabilize you? Number three, let's go back to the basics. We're talking sleep, food, rest, meditation, moving your body. Which of those are out of alignment right now in your life and what do you need to do to prioritize them? And number four, finally, how can you love yourself well this week? Is it filling up your car with gas before it's on E and then you're all stressed? Is it meal prepping? Is it scheduling rest or a day off? How can you set yourself up for success in your life outside of the anxiety triggering moments? This work is work, but I believe that you, that me, that our health, our mental health is completely worth it. Now, if you want more information on this, you can go to my website, therefinedwoman.com slash shop. And I have a guide called Moving Through Fear. 
that really helps support you in identifying the fears that are holding you back in your life and then walks you through a process of making those truth statements. So you can go to the shop for that. And then also we have an old episode on the Refined Collective by Dr. Therese Moscardo and it's called Marie Kondo, Your Mental Health. So we will link to that in the show notes. All right, that is enough for this week. Thanks for joining me on the mini series of Mental Health May. Today, we talked about outside of the situation, how to identify the triggers. But next week, how do you stabilize in the moment once you've become activated? Stay tuned for that.